You're listening to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, welcome back, everyone, to Hotel Bar Sessions. This is Charles Peterson, your co-host, and I'm sitting here getting ready to chop it up with Dr. Lee Johnson and Dr. Rick Lee. Before we get this thing going, let's get our flow on. Rick, what you having for your drink? I think today I'm a little confused as what I want to have in the end, and so I think I'm just going to start with an old classic gin and tonic. Ooh, wow. very nice. What gin? Let's go with St. Martin's. Okay, well, you've got to have a fantastic rant and rave if you're drinking St. Martin's. Yeah, so <laughs> I, because I don't want to overshadow this, I'm going to start today with my rave, which is Sarah Vaughn, people. Like, why isn't everyone listening to Sarah Vaughn all the time? And I feel like, you know, she doesn't get the publicity and cred she deserves because others have overshadowed her. But I've been listening to a lot of Sarah Vaughn lately, and my God, sometimes, you know, I'm sitting here working and I just have to stop. And I'm like, that is something. So Sarah Vaughn is my rave. My rant is critical thinking. Could we people admit that you can't teach critical thinking? Because if you could, then probably nine Supreme Court justices would exhibit some of it. But like when you could just straight up contradict yourself, either across two opinions you yourself wrote or even in the same opinion, critical thinking's not going to solve that. Maybe just like straight up don't lie anymore, people, especially if you're on the Supreme Court. I'm tired of critical thinking and people thinking that's going to solve all of our problems. So you're saying embracing antinomies doesn't work when you're talking judicial policy and decisions. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. That's right. All right. All right, Lee, what are you having? Well, I'm going to stick with the huge. I'm going to have a fireball and Diet Coke. <laughs> My rant this week is pharmaceutical ads. <laughs> It's just weird that we advertise pharmaceutical drugs in this country. I know when people have visited me from outside of the U.S., they think it's weird. Of course, we see it all the time, so we become desensitized to it. But it is really weird. And the names, like who's naming these things? They're so bizarre. So Lee, I was just working all week on getting a pharmaceutical sponsor for the podcast. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's fine. And, but like, how, how would you know if it's an actual pharmaceutical or just like a kid from Utah that just got named? <laughs> so what's your rave? My rave this week is cabbage. I said what I said. It's the best vegetable. We planted cabbage for the first time in our garden this year. It's just growing up. It's so cute, and I cannot wait to eat it up. I love cabbage. So, Charles, what about you? What are you drinking, and what's your rant and rave? You know, I just bought myself a nice feisty blue straw hat, and I think that that deserves <laughs> a basil Hayden rye on the rocks. Ooh, nice. the rye. I have not tried the rye. You have to try the basil Hayden rye. It's quite delicious. My rant is monthly, automatically debited payments from your bank account. In small amounts, though, right? <laughs> I don't mind. I pay my, my mortgage, you know, automatically every particular day of the month. Huge amount of money comes out. My car payment, no problem. You know what? It's that $9 from Apple Music that kind of drives me a little <laughs> nuts. 
You know, it's the $5 yeah. from the DNC because you lose track of them. And at the end yeah. of the month, you're like, oh, why don't I have any money? And you realize it's like a rabbit who's been nibbling at your cabbage patch gradually over the course of a week. And all of a sudden, there's no cabbage, but you didn't see it disappear. So that's my <laughs> rant. It's the most irritating damn feature of this brave new world we live in. This week, my rave is Alec Baldwin's voice. Yeah! Oh. Ooh, Absolutely. Nice. You could tell it's been years of hard drinking with the bourbon and probably like a million point two cigarettes that have sucked down from his years <laughs> growing up in Long Island to living in Manhattan. And you hear every sort of gravelly bit of wisdom he's earned in this amazing life of his. And I just love it. I listened to him in podcasts. I took my daughter to see one of his animated movies. And I just realized that voice so seductive. He's the best Baldwin. He's the best Baldwin. Sure. Best Baldwin. So I'm going to rave about Alec Baldwin's voice. So let's turn the page and let's get it on board. I think we have Lee is in the captain's seat today. So Lee, what are we talking about? So the title of today's episode is Digital Afterlives. And what I want to talk about is partially how much information we're putting out there and how we really have to start reckoning with the fact that there is a digital me and a digital you that is separate from our meat space selves, but in particular about how long that digital you and that digital me could possibly live, which is well beyond our physical deaths. So we're going to talk a little bit about how it is that we think about both our meat space selves and our digital selves, but also what kinds of controls or lack of controls we have over how long that information sticks around and who it belongs to. But before we jump into that, since we're talking about afterlives in a sense, so I personally am not what I think anyone would consider a religious person. However, we can't not think about an afterlife, you know, your own death and what might come after that. I know that you've both written books. Charles, you have children. So you both have some interest <laughs> in the afterlife. <laughs> When you publish books, you just try to monetize your afterlife. That's really what that's all about. And children are about monetization, too, like in the form of chores. <laughs> free labor. That's right, free labor. What I want to ask you before we even get going is how you think about the afterlife. How important is it to you? What is the kind of maximum age that you can imagine yourself living to? Or what is the age after which you would not want to live? Let me just pitch that back to you, just afterlives in general. Off the bat, I'm someone who, and I say this because I don't see myself dying anytime soon, but I'm someone who thinks I would not be upset if your consciousness just winked out, right, mm -hmm. at the moment of the demise of the meat body. Having said that, I think between 80 and 90 is fine because I, I think about I'm blessed with we're blessed with longevity in, in my families. So I have family members who've lived past 90. Whoa. Right. So I think that OK with me. And to get to that age is really an amazing thing. And I don't want more than that. I don't think about being invested in living past that or existing past that 80, 90 years on the human plane. That's more than enough for me. But do you see yourself as living on, for example, in your writings or in your children? Do you mean, like, how much longer will my books that, if anybody knows they exist, how long will they continue to be on library shelves? My question here is not so much about how long, but just that there will be an afterlife to you that is separable from your meat space body life. I don't think about that. I know that sounds okay. really lacking in any sort of imagination. 
Because I think what happens is if I think about that, then it becomes artificial in terms of the things that I do. And I feel like I'm doing them for the wrong reasons and I'm not present in the moment, right? Okay. So if I'm thinking about, oh, I'll write this because in 150 years this will mean something, then I'm clearly looking beyond or looking past the benefits or purposes of what I'm doing now. Okay. Rick, what about you? So from the moment you asked the question, not that I wasn't listening to every word Charles just said, but I I (laughs) was trying to think like for everything I've ever written, the idea that it would live after me, after my meat space body died, actually never occurred to me and certainly not as a motivation. But then, of course, you know, going back to Plato's Pharmacon or the whole argument about obviously once you write it has an independent existence and it's out there. I think the flip side of that is the lack of institutional support for philosophical contributions that aren't writing books and articles and podcasts. Sorry? And podcasts, and po- for example. And podcasts. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, if you could get tenure on the basis of a couple of podcasts, that would be great. <laughs> so, uh, for me, I never really thought of it, but now, Lee, you've actually started freaking me out a little bit. But I, I also think, like, now the idea that in 80 years, some dork like me is walking through the library shelves and is looking for a book and mine is next to it and says, I'll take this too and learn something, I kind of like that. But other than that, I don't, I, I think about dying an awful lot because frankly, I've lived a lifestyle that isn't, I don't have a long-term strategy. Um, <laughs> it's no, like, I'm a, I, came, I came unprepared. Right, there's no plan B, there's no plan C, I have no backup. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's exactly right. Like I'm doing this live and there is no backup. There's no do-overs. So I, I don't think about it, and I am no longer religious in any—I'm not religious at all. I don't even want to qualify it. I'm, I'm just not—I'm not spiritual. I'm not religious. And living forever, frankly, the thought exhausts me. I think that whether or not you believe in an afterlife in the traditional sense or the sense that we see in the monotheistic religions, whether or not you believe in a heaven or a hell, there is a sense in which all of us have to think about our impact beyond our physical lives or after we physically die. And one of the things that I think is relatively new, or not relatively new, is absolutely new to our generation and is distinctly different from thinking about your living on past your death or your afterlife as we think about it, for example, with children or with books or with artworks or buildings or any other thing that we might create that carries something of our memory with it or something of our life with it. I think now we really do have to seriously think about the possibility that we, or everything that's important about us, could be reanimated after our body dies. Now, I I want to later in the podcast talk about the possibility of us actually having a kind of continuous life that goes on much longer than we already think, and perhaps even forever, but in the sense that we do have these digital selves, and information is forever, for the most part. All of this information that we're storing out there in these archives that we do not own, that we do not have control over, could be reanimated after we die. Now, there are lots of ways to think about this. Your mind or your consciousness or whatever could be uploaded into a cloud or inserted into an android or some other organic being. That's the sort of extreme imaginary 
but even much more not so extreme and actually very right now possible options are things like, you know, we could have a machine learning system, basically take all of your information, all of your social media posts, all of your emails, all of your books and writings, videos, phone calls, etc., and create an AI that can more or less mimic you. This already exists. This technology already exists. So there is a sense in which, obviously, we can have some arguments about whether or not that's you and questions of identity or whatever. But the point is, is that there is a sense in which we really might be the first generation that has to think about or has some control over saying when we want to die and not just our physical selves, but our personalities. And that's really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about our digital afterlives. Lee, let me ask you, because it seems to me there are two ways to get at this question. And one is, and it seemed toward the end, you were shading toward, I would say, more or less legal issues. So should there be laws governing this and so on? And, and we could talk about that. But for me, there's another question I think we have to address and maybe this is more on the, as we're creating these online digital selves, this needs to be thought about there. But because all of this data exists somewhere else and in multiple places in the best possible scenario, because if one server goes down, it's better if there are more, people could hack that shit. And so there's one way in which I, I think part of the horse has left the barn already in that like <laughs> that's out there. And if it's out there, no matter what a law says, it's really hackable versus something I might say to one of you that's private or maybe even a letter or a diary I have. Millions of people aren't going to be working on getting into my house after I die to see if I have a journal, but they might be working to get into Facebook or Twitter. In a way, I guess I'm saying all the laws we can come up with aren't going to do shit because there are people out there who all they do all day long is try to get in there. And so de facto, we might not ever have control, even if de jure control is given to me over what my digital afterlife looks like. I do want to say you're bringing attention to two really important things. One is that when we talk about our digital selves, we talk about it as being data, being in the cloud, but it is also material, right? I mean, it's somewhere on servers. But just to your question about the legality of the ownership or the rights to this information, I tend to be really resistant to the kinds of arguments that are like, why make a law about this? Because someone will break it. Because if that's true, like, why make laws at all? Right? I mean, can I just, uh, so my, my point wasn't why make a law because someone will break it. My point was rather that given the nature of the meat space presence of my digital self, this is less in my control than mm -hmm. other. So let's say a law declares it my property. That's less in control than my. Well, this is a bad example, but, you know, my, my modelo especial, which is in my control until the sixth or seventh one. And then it's less in my control. <laughs> so my point was rather this seems to rely a lot more on a location that is someone else's property than any other aspect of me that might live on. 
Yeah, that is the current arrangement, but that doesn't have to be the arrangement, right? I mean, currently it is the case that we hand our information over to very few but enormous corporations in order to get free apps. And they own the meat space servers that host the digital information that I'm giving them. And so, yes, in that sense, the horse has left the barn. The horse has also left the barn in the other sense that I think you're kind of suggesting, which is that because it's information, I don't actually know where it is. I mean, it could have already been screenshotted and copied a million times. And that's, of course, also true. I suppose what I'm trying to say is we have to start thinking about this now because we have the capabilities to substantively reanimate someone after their deaths. We get information enough to reanimate a dead person in a sense that is much more real than what we see in science fiction. So the reason that I think that we need to talk about this right now is because the technology is outpacing us. It's outpacing our laws. It's outpacing our philosophical thinking about it. It's outpacing our moral evaluation of it. Well, I think that if we're going to make parallel or equate the meat self with the digital self, then I think we should really treat them as the same. So when you go to the hospital, you get treatment, you get a doctor taking care of you. And then when you die, the hospital doesn't just automatically own your body, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is... I mean, honestly, I don't know. But like, (laughs) I'm glad to know that now. No, because family members or whoever, they have to come and claim the body. Right. So you can go through the the whole process of ritualizing, memorializing and, and, and funerals. So we have to think about our digital selves having that same sort of relationship and the same sort of access being allowed for that. There has to be a declaration of ownership by the person, no matter what the relationship to the controlling entity was. Hospital just does it on your body. I want to think about what you said about sampling and then digitizing and deep faking some of the information. I want to think about it in relationship to the case of Henrietta Lacks. Yeah. Right. The working class black woman from Baltimore whose cells were taken from her and because of the nature of those cells became the foundation for these amazing breakthroughs in terms of fighting and studying cancer. Right. Because DNA is just information. Exactly. So that's why I'm saying if we're going to acknowledge certain proprietary rights and certain moral and ethical relationships to the meat body. I'm never going to get that phrase right because I realize saying it and thinking it, it feels like somebody's walked over my grave and I get like a shiver, right? But, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's the same sort of dynamic if we're talking about our digital selves as well. And if there is an outcry, if there's a hue and cry over what happened to Henrietta Lacks and the other ways in which people's material bodies have been appropriated, abused, disseminated without any acknowledgement of the source or speaking to the, the people who are connected to the, the, the source, then the same thing should apply to the digital self. I'm 100% sympathetic with that argument, Charles. I think the immediate problem that we're going to run into is that Facebook and Google and Bank of America and probably your hospital are going to come back to you and say, oh, sorry, I think you must have forgotten. We do have an agreement about this information and who owns it. Here's the terms and conditions that you signed. So, yeah, I mean, they do own that information. I think that's deeply problematic. Word. We, right. <laughs> Say it louder for the people in the back. Because <laughs> right? we speak about it in terms of these fantastic ways and we see, you know, Tupac's hard light self rapping along with Dre and Snoop. And that seems, yeah. oh, this is a brave new world and look at technology is giving us. But I mean, how traumatizing is that for Tupac's mother? To see this image, to see this recreation of her son who was so cruelly taken from her at such a young age. So I think there needs to be some sort of consideration of those people who are intimately, emotionally connected to the material source of that image or that digital reproduction. (laughs) 
Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email a audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. I've been wondering during this conversation about what the harm actually is if someone abuses my digital self after my meat body is dead. Because like, I could see ways in which financially that might be a problem. But now when Charles talked about Tupac, I'm beginning to see there might be harm to other people, but I'm still having a hard time seeing where the harm lies. Do you know what they'll do to your credit? <laughs> so I won't get a post-mortem car loan? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I think that we do have to at least acknowledge the obvious harm, which is ongoing all the time for everyone who has their digital identity stolen right now, which is that people can run up debts, the debts that then get transferred to your family. They can post things and ruin people's reputations. There is actual harm that can be done when someone steals your digital identity. But I think that you're asking an important question. I also want to get back to the Tupac example because Charles said we're not considering what harm might be done to his surviving family in reanimating him in this way. And so I want to talk a little bit about this case that was from 2018, where a German court actually compelled Facebook to give a, a grieving mother access to her deceased daughter's profile information. So her password, all of her private chats, etc., and it's important to note when we're talking about this particular case that the daughter may or may not have committed suicide. So it's unclear whether or not the daughter committed suicide. And some people have argued that the mother shouldn't have been given unedited view into her daughter's private life, presuming that the mother you know, for good reasons, probably wanted to know why did she kill herself or did she kill herself? I, I don't know if you said this, but uh, do we know how old the girl was when she died? She was a teenager, I think. So at any rate, we should think about, for example, the harm that could be done in exactly the way that Charles described to surviving members of a deceased person if they were reanimated in a way that causes emotional trauma to the surviving members of their family. But I also think that we have to think about what we owe the dead. I personally can say for a fact that there is no case in which I would want anyone after my death to be able to read every single private chat that I've had with every single person. It could do real harm to not only other people, but even to the veracity of 
the sense of the relationship that other people feel like they have to me. Now, I say that as if I'm just talking shit about everybody behind their back in private chats, which I'm not doing. But you see what I'm saying. We've all had things that we've said that we meant to be private and we meant to stay private. Well, I mean, there are a couple of points in there that I want to consider. And I want to go back to the case of the young woman in Germany. And I wonder, because of the unresolved nature of her death, right? You're saying it may have been suicide, not sure. I assume that the German police could compel Facebook to turn over the files if they were conducting an investigation into her demise. Yeah, that's true. But this was not about trying to determine for police purposes, how she died. This wasn't an open investigation. I think officially her death was ruled an accident. The reason I bring up that other interpretation is because this is actually a subplot of a Black Mirror episode that's called Smithereens, where there is a mother who is trying to get access to her daughter's whatever Facebook was in the fictional world of the episode. And the fictional Facebook said, no, you can't have it. That violates our terms and conditions. And so this mother sits down every evening before she goes to bed and tries three passwords because after that she's locked out for 24 hours and then crosses them off and then tries again. But she's obsessed, right? Because she thinks there's something in that archive of a person's private thoughts that is going to tell her something that she needs to know. And my sense is that that's just one of the painfully unfortunate parts of grieving is that you're never going to fully know there are going to be things that you wish you had said, you wish you had asked, you wish you had known, and you just don't know. And I worry that this is making it possible for anyone to know, and that's harmful. I will quickly follow up and say that I, I actually really appreciate and respect that I embrace the idea of the rights of the dead. I think that's an important yeah. thing. What yeah. concerns me is the fact that you have this corporate entity with its overweening power being in a position to manipulate to ignore the possible emotional needs of an individual. First of all, clearly I'm not a big fan of Facebook. So I realize that I have this sort of implicit bias against Facebook, which is driving what I'm trying to say. But I think that this is, is deeply problematic because you do have this corporate entity which is going to monetize in a certain way and manipulate the information and the identity of people who have shuffled off the mortal coil. And it worries me that that sort of takes precedent over the emotional needs of the family, the friends, the intimates of people who are, are grieving and may want some sort of resolution. But do you think that the survivors have that right? Do you think that just because you're dead, the survivors have a right to your private thoughts? It just worries me that a corporation has more right to make money off of you after you're dead than your community has in terms of finding some sort of resolution with you after you've passed on. Hmm. So what's interesting to me about all of this is, and Charles just started broaching on the subject, is that let's leave, for example, emails and text messages aside for a second. But what we don't talk about often enough and I know later on the season, we're going to talk about the hustle and gig mm -hmm. work and so on. But to the extent that we contribute to Twitter and Facebook, we're gig workers because we're the ones who are making the content that they're now generating ads off. Like they can't make that content themselves. And so this is where McLuhan is exactly right. Like the medium is the message. And here, we're gig workers producing content for them. And how do they see what we do? They don't see it as our private thoughts. They see it as content. I don't think anyone should consider Facebook or Twitter private thoughts. 
Again, email and text messages are different, although everyone should be careful, especially if you're organizing or you live in a country that you might be in the opposition. Please don't text message and use email. But certainly Twitter and Facebook, I don't think anyone should ever consider that to be their private content. Yeah, so I want to say that if we're talking about tweets or posts, yes, that's not private. It's out there for anyone to see. So I'm really talking about the content that Twitter and Facebook and Instagram have that has a kind of qualified privacy to it. Like it's between two people on a messenger or DMs or whatever. But I think that you're right to point to the fact that the medium is the message. We are the content. You know, if they're not selling us something, then we are the product. You would think after whatever it's been now, 14 years, that people would have that basic understanding of social media. But people do not have that understanding of social media. And people, I don't think, are aware of how much information they're putting out there and what can be done with that information. Let me just float this as a possibility. This is not something that I would choose. But one option would be we should be able to say, when I physically die, I want to be deleted. Like, whatever company has any information on me are legally obligated to delete it. Now, I get it that nothing is ever deleted, but at least there's a kind of proprietary duty of companies to delete that. Now, the problem with that is, of course, that hurts the internet as a whole. That hurts the operations of AI as a whole because AI largely works on anonymized metadata. So uh, I don't think that we would want to do that, say, you know, when I die, I want everything to be deleted. But we could push harder for something like, when I die, I want all my information to be anonymized. So that, for example, my mom can't come back and get information that I don't want them to have, much less some mad scientist in 2060 who decides, you know what we need in this world? Another Liam Johnson. Let's reanimate this information. But like right now, as we're recording this, I'm looking at a Zoom screen. And so, Lee, when my information is anonymized, am I now like sucked out of this video and my voice also? And so then you two are talking and then there's three minutes of silence. I mean, we're all intertangled in the interwebs. But that's not how Zoom reads this Zoom call anyway. Oh, okay. I was just using that as an example. But okay, let's say we're all together in a Facebook post. Are we... It like Stalin era Russia, like I suddenly get erased and and I mean you've, you've been invited to dinner right. and you're the last you're the last guest at the right. dinner. Okay, because I do think it's important to get into a little bit of the weeds about like how this would work. Sure. If we talked about Twitter DMs or Facebook messages, so what would happen would be something like, yes, after I physically die, any chats or DMs that we had, the three of us together. I would disappear from. They would no longer exist for you. 
But the information, the metadata, would still be there for Twitter to function and for Facebook to function. Well, I have a concern about that. So then what future is there for certain types of scholarship? Yeah, this is the good point. Right, because we understand that as a civilization, we're far less materially literate than we were maybe 100 years ago. So now, instead of going to someone's library or going through someone's correspondences, historians 50 years from now are going to have to start going to Facebook or going to Twitter or going to Instagram and saying, hey, can I get access to, because I'm writing a biography of Lee M. Johnson, who had a huge presence on social media. So if you start deleting, or if the default is to delete your entire presence, two things happen. So you limit or you destroy the ability for future scholars to reconstruct this time period and maybe get an insight into you and your thoughts. You also, I think, as Rick pointed out, you warp the context of the people that you were interacting with. I think that both of those are very good, very real concerns. But you know what? If anonymizing or deleting me when I physically die were the default then people would think more seriously about how they want to arrange for their digital deaths. But let me push Charles' point just a little bit further, because there are obviously a lot of reasons why people like Cavendish and Anne Conway are not taught when people are teaching modern philosophy. But one of the reasons is because the discipline made a choice some time ago that we're going to treat as serious philosophers those who have published books. And the more books you've published, the more seriously we'll take you as a philosopher. Well, guess what? Women were, to a large extent, shut out of the publishing world. Now, if the default was you're anonymized, then we would never have access to the tremendous amount of philosophical production that was done by women in the modern period. And that's not about them as individuals. That's about us as a, a society. I want to push Rick's point a, a, a bit farther down the road because we're really speaking about this. And I don't know if we should. I don't know if it's problematic or not. But we're certainly speaking about this in terms of individual rights. Mm. These are bourgeois rights we're talking about in a certain sense. And one could argue, what if we thought about this in terms of the obligation to the larger community and the civilizational memory? So to speak to what Rick was saying, like, what if people start deleting out of their own needs, but perhaps there's something in the snapshot in time of them that we have or something in the writings that they have that they're digital correspondences that may be of ultimate benefit to the larger progress of society or civilization. I mean, that sounds huge, but it's not something we should not consider. Okay, so I first want to repeat that deleting or anonymizing information when you're dead is not my position. I'm just like throwing out something that we should think about. Uh, however, you, you, okay, so you felt a little too much in the hot seat. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, my butt is burning here. Like, yeah, but I do want to say just to this new constellation of problems that you're presenting, which I think are really important problems, is that of course not all of history are firsthand accounts. A lot of the way that we fill in the longer, more complicated, messier genealogy of, just for example, the history of thought is through interviews, is through people's accounts of other people. That's always been how history is done, how philosophy has been done, how intellectual history of our world has been done. 
It has always also been the case that we might have known someone had diaries, but we couldn't get them because they said, nobody gets to read these after I die. And so we go and interview their families and we interview their friends. And that's how we piece together stories. And you know what? There are still some people left out. There are still things that we don't know. They're always going to be incomplete stories. I'm not saying that the best plan is just to anonymize or delete ourselves once we physically die. But I'm saying what we have now is as problematic an arrangement of the virtual world as that would be, I think. And we've got to find something in between. And the problem is that all of us, like all of the people who are producing the content, who are the content, we're not taking up our responsibility in determining how this new landscape of rights and privileges and obligations is going to look. It's only Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon and Alibaba. So I have a question. You either accidentally or as a self-correction went from you were about to say the content we produce to saying the content we are. Often we start reaching for new tools, sometimes when the old ones still work. To identify me with the thing I produce, we have a word for it, and that's commodity fetishism. And so I'm wondering if part of this issue is, and again, I, I think you've got me to start thinking about the difference between DMs, Facebook messengers, again, if you're organizing something that is illegal or not, or you're in a country that you could get in trouble, do not use Facebook Messenger. Do not use DMs. Please hit me up if you want to know other things you could use. But also, never confirm any information to anybody who calls you if you don't know the caller. <laughs> exactly. If, if it's not already in your contacts. Don't answer that call. Yeah. Because once again, just like Deadwood, who's ever gotten good news from a stranger? <laughs> <laughs> so we could come back to where I think, Lee, your thought is going these days. If we really did think of ourselves as the producers of this, it, it now becomes a, a question of labor and, and capital in really interesting ways. The products of our labor are expropriated from us. We are alienated from the products of our own labor. And this would include, and I think part of your worry is, once alienated, that lives on independent of us. And we ought to start worrying about that. Yeah, I think that your point about when the producer becomes the content, we have a term for that, the commodification of labor. I think that you're right. And as long as we are living under capitalism, we have to fight that fight first. We have to fight the fight that is going to be about rights, workers' rights. It's going to be about ownership. It's going to be about what's private and what's public. It's going to be about consent and those sorts of things. That is the way the conversation is being conducted right now. I add, unfortunately, because we're under capitalism, because we have to talk about this under the economic conditions that we're living. However, I do want to say that Part of the reason that I had a hesitation before when I said the content that we produce, I mean the content that we are, is because in a broader philosophical, metaphysical sense, I have, over the last 10 or 15 years that I've been really focused on philosophy of technology, I have come to be convinced that we are information. And in fact, that 
everything is information. And this is probably the Derridian in me, is to see things as systems, language systems in some sense or another, as texts. But I do think that all the way down, just to go back to what Charles was saying earlier, all the way down to our DNA, that's information. That's what that is. It's just more and less sophisticated ways of organizing information. And so, yeah, I do think that separately from the workers' revolution, which everybody needs to be on board with, separately from that, there's a lot of rethinking that we need to do about the world that we live in now in the sense of who we are and how we relate to what we consider real or virtual. Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at hotel bar podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. In the off chance that you weren't furiously scribbling notes just in, you can also visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know there. Now, back to our conversation. So I understand that, especially for younger people who are first getting into Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or other social media, that they do put what they consider their own most selves out there into Facebook or out there into TikTok. And and that this is part of the destructive feedback because the internet is just a, a damaging rage machine. That if you put what you think is your own most self out there and the internet rage machine comes back at you or worse, you're really hurt by it. But on the other hand, so this is going to seem like a tangent, but I have now, during pandemic, achieved a weight that I had, and I'm not kidding, when I was in fifth and sixth grade. So, in other words, I was a big boy. I I was really large. I think one of the things that you develop, especially when you're a fat child, is a way of putting not your inner self out, but a different self out there so when that's made fun of, It's not you. I think if we could start early on teaching children that, oh yeah, you could perform a different, shout out to Judith Butler, you could perform a different identity. All identities are performance, and that's why we're all a multitude, because we perform different identities all the time. And so when they start attacking that, that's not you. That's a performance of an identity that you constructed. Then I'm less worried about what happens to that performance, because qua performance, it's already made for public consumption, including copying, sampling, and so on. Again, this leaves out two main things. One is these media that are labeled private, like direct messages and Facebook Messenger. And also we haven't touched, I mean, Lee, you have, 
the whole aspect that I can't really be in the U.S. today and not have an online presence for paying my bills or registering to vote or social security. Being cheated by a doctor. Be, yeah, yeah. And, and so that's another part of my identity, which is not, I mean, it is a performance, but it's one that I'm forced to do. But uh, yeah, so if I'm performing this, then I'm less worried about what happens to it. I want to step in because I, I like this idea of performing these identities once again. Hat tip to, to Judith Butler. And certainly when you start talking about teenagers or the young people that begin to engage social media, and not just young people, you see this as well. One could ask about the level of authenticity in terms of the person, the identity that's being presented to others on these various platforms. Because you always see this whole thing. I don't know about you, but you see your friends and you're like, oh, my God. I wish I could go to Bermuda. Oh my God, this person's living their best life. And you realize a lot of this is so manicured that it's this fictitious being that's created to move in the marketplace of other fictitious beings. So I wonder if we talk about digital selves and digital lives, do we have to think about not just the various identities that exist on social media platforms, but we also have to think about the identities that exist within government records, who you are within the Social Security Bureau, who you are within the IRS, and who you are within government bureaucracy. So I just wanted to follow up on that because I do agree with Rick that people born, you know, let's say after 2005, who've grown up in a world thoroughly saturated by social media, do have what I think is a really awesome opportunity to exist, to be in the world, not as simply being or existing, but as constantly creating and curating and archiving and performing a self and there's a lot of really amazing things about that. I also agree with Charles that, unfortunately, there still remain all of these areas of our lives where the datafied version of us exists, that we do not have any kind of curatorial or archival or creative input, but we're only measured and assessed. And so there are a lot of great things about what the internet has allowed for us to rethink in terms of performances of the self. But the problem is, is that there's that whole other side. I don't have any say over my medical records. I don't have any say over my credit score. I mean, people think they do, but you sure as hell don't. You, you're not curating your credit score. I don't have any say over whatever the AI program that is assessing me for a job interview says about what my face is doing or what my voice sounds like or what my resume looks like, etc. So it's a balance. But even there, this gets difficult because there is an analogy to the history situation that Charles brought up earlier, namely that the more data that can be amassed, things like Google Assistant or even Madame A from Amazon, they can now start telling from certain questions you're asking, for example, whether you're suicidal or whether you might be having a stroke. And this can all be anonymized, but we should think about whether it's important to have that information to help more people. So even there, like, okay, I should have control over what in my medical records? That a person, a 55-year-old white male in Chicago has a blood pressure of, well, these days, 190 over fuck. <laughs> 
That's it. That's my next tattoo. <laughs> BP 190 over fuck. <laughs> Rick's blood pressure is just like sad face emoji over cry laugh emoji. <laughs> With a martini glass. <laughs> and a sad face. <laughs> so I, th- I think there is some use of the data that is related to me that if it could be decathected off of me, could prove really useful to us as a society. Yeah, yeah. But again, under capitalism, that's not how it works. I mean, that would work if we were in a good socialist, communist society, right? Then I'd be willing to give up a lot more of what we probably naively call privacy. I'd be willing to give up a lot more of that for the greater good, because the more information we all share, the better all of our lives could potentially get. But that's not what's happening because as we all saw in the last year, the more information we all share, the richer a very, very, very few people get. If one can make the choice to say, A, I want all of my information deleted or I want it made anonymous, or I want to contribute my information to some sort of huge publicly owned research database. That, that everyone can have access to, cannot monetize, and can be used for all these other sort of purposes that, that we think about, I haven't talked about in this conversation. Like donating your digital organs. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly, exactly. Well, we're all doing that already. It's just that we're donating them to five or six corporations. <laughs> we're not donating them to humanity. Right. Well, no, but that's the thing. I mean, yeah, but you know, this isn't really, a, it's not a donation, right? This is a transaction that, that yeah. we're engaging with. We're giving you access to manipulate our information in order to give us access to this much larger platform and network and community. So that's not quite the same thing. But th- there is another point to this, and I should go on the record as saying that I am really a, a techno-optimist. I am a social media hater, not just a social media <laughs> pessimist. I am a social media hater, says the man who's now on a podcast. <laughs> you don't consider podcasting social media, though, do you? No, no, because they yeah, can't talk okay. back. <laughs> There's nothing social about this media. (laughs) So I'm a techno-optimist, but I also realize that as computing power gets higher and higher in smaller and smaller vehicles or spaces, all of this data can really easily be connected back to my actual identity, like my name and my address Mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. And it starts with things as simple as... You know, websites used to ask your browser, what operating system are you using? What browser is this? And you could start connecting all of these things which are on my desktop, then with data that is publicly available. And so we are all really identifiable in ways that I think we need to think a lot more about. And and by the way, private browsing does not save you. Private browsing just means that your partner won't discover your search history. Yeah, everybody's dying word should be erase my search history, burn (laughs) burn my external drive. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the average person has an even moderately adequate understanding of 
how they're tracked and traced. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. We are locatable by our information. And we were joking about phone scams earlier, but a lot of the reasons that phone scams are so successful is because these scammers have either bought or stolen or both data sets from data brokers that sell these things. And they're just trying to call you up, hoping that you'll confirm a couple of things that permits them to connect one data set to another data set. And all you need is just enough connections to be like, ah, now I know who this is and I've got everything, right? And so, yeah, again, if somebody calls you and asks you, do not offer or confirm any information. Although, Lee, your warranty is about to expire. (laughs) (laughs) Even better, once again, I'm going to reiterate this. If you don't recognize the number, don't answer the phone. I want to pick up where Rick talked about being a techno-optimist. I'm actually a, a, a techno sort of delayed optimist. I think we are getting very, very close to the singularity, the moment where AI awakens and just takes command. Really, I think we are, I mean, technology is moving at such a pace, we can't keep up. We can't keep up with it philosophically, morally, physically, commercially. So I think we're moving toward that. But then the optimistic part is, don't laugh, but laugh. I think about Frank H. Herbert's idea in the Dune series, when he gives you the backstory of how humanity got to the point where it began to manipulate the mental capacity of people, you know, what he describes as the Butlerian Jihad, where, where human beings resist and rebel against a society that is completely dominated by digital consciousness. So I think that's a possibility if we move toward the singularity. I think eventually people are going to realize and figure out the ways in which we're being constrained or really enslaved to some degree and manipulated by algorithms and these deep technological controls on our society. Well, since we're all declaring our team allegiances, I'm also a techno-optimist. I'm a techno-optimist, but all of the things that make me optimistic about technology in order for that optimism to be realized require a worker's revolution. If technological advancement, and in particular, if AI research and advancement remains in the hands of a very few corporations and nation states, I think we are all doomed. As long as capitalism, the the logic of capital is driving both technology in the sense that we're talking about here, AI technology, internet technology, etc., but also in the larger sense, I think we're just absolutely screwed. And it won't matter because we're just going to blow up the planet. But I mean, here's a moment where I, I feel like on the one hand, certainly, of course, under capitalism, but even just the way, let's say, research happens in the natural sciences, there's a way in which we all benefit from that just going forward, going forward, going forward. And then every once in a while, we come to a place where we're like, oh, that's scary. Maybe not. But science has already opened the possibility. So nuclear weapons, cloning humans, and so on. There's a way in which in the digital technologies, there will be advances, advances, advances. And so far, we've been willing to let that go like we have research in the natural sciences. What terrifies me is at the same time we're letting advances in digital technology go forward, we're evacuating the humanities that could fill that advance in with thoughtful people. 
Mm-hmm. I, and I don't mean just us as professors, but people who got a BA in English literature or, God forbid, medieval French literature or <laughs> African-American studies or those disciplines which make us, I think, generally better citizens with one another, that we are thoughtful about issues that matter. I do want to say that I am extremely encouraged at the level of thoughtful critique that's going on inside the tech industry right now. I think that you see a lot of black people in tech who are talking about AI bias, facial recognition bias. You see a lot of women in tech who, just thinking back to Gamergate all the way up to now, who are talking about these things. We see a lot more discussion of disability rights in tech. These are all coming from within the tech sector. And of course, there's people like Kathy O'Neill who are really pushing forward this idea that we need to have algorithmic audits. There need to be AI ethicists as a part of all of these companies. Here's the problem, though. There's no check on the titans of this industry, right? They are more powerful than any state. There is no law that that is going to hold them accountable. There's no amount of money. Nobody's going to outspend them and nobody's going to out brute force them about anything. And so that's our bigger problem right now. The horses are out of the barn and they're humongous horses. I know I've said this like 10 times in season one of this podcast, and I'll probably say it every few episodes here, but I do not understand why in 2021, we do not have a secretary of technology. I'm shocked that's not a cabinet position. Because we have no plan. We have no national plan for AI. We have no, I mean, I know Biden is drafting one right now, but that's going to take three years and who knows, he could be out and we could all be back with the red hats again in four years. But we, we do have a space force. Oh, thank God for the space force. Yeah. You know what, Rick, thank you so much for reminding us of that because I was really on the cliff. I was really, I was on the ledge with that one, but you brought me back in. But who's actually running the space force? Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and and the Virgin guy. What's his name? Richard. What's his name? The Virgin. Oh, Virgin. Oh, oh, Branson. Richard Branson. Yeah. Like NASA works for them, right? Like they, you know. It, like, it turns so. out that Wall-E was a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if humanity, if the consciousness of humanity, if we're just exhausted, you know, like there's a collective weariness. So what have we been ascension as homo sapiens for how long, like maybe a million years? And I, I wonder if we're just like, we're done. The last 3000 years has really put it on us. You know, you, it's like you're at the party and you enjoy yourself. And all of a sudden, like around 2.15, it just hits you like, man, I've, I've been here since seven. I, I can't do this anymore. And I wonder if humanity is just ready for last call. Okay, so since we're getting pretty close to last call ourselves here, I do want to say that I kind of do think that we're almost done. I do think that a few generations from now that the beings that exist on this earth will be beings that today we would not recognize as humans. So, like, who knows what we're going to call them, transhumans, posthumans, whatever. And that's, of course, different than saying humans will go extinct, although it's kind of close to saying that humans will go extinct. But I think that's a very good possibility that students who are in college right now, that their children will be posthumans. You mean in, in the sense of the HBO documentary, Years and Years? That's not a documentary. That's, that was a series. Oh, like, did I say documentary? Yeah, yes. <laughs> good God. <laughs> Freudian slip. Freudian slip. <laughs> so for listeners who haven't seen Years and Years, a lot of it is about this kind of 
looking forward to a very rapid technological advancement over the next 10 years or so. But I will say that one thing that is in that series that I do think absolutely will be the case in the next 10 years is a a teenage daughter comes down to sit and have breakfast with her parents, and she's got on her face what looks like an Insta filter, you know, like the big-eyed puppy dog filter or whatever. I think that virtual reality is definitely going to become a much more common part of our world in the next 10 years or so. And and things like that, I think, will absolutely be possible. But when you think about the advancements that have been made, not in obvious... Okay, so anti-aging technology is a $48 billion a year industry. And it includes a lot of things. People think about cryogenics and stuff like that. But it's not just that. It's stem cell research. It's building new limbs. I mean, we could get into a real sorties paradox here and be like, how many parts of you can I replace with prosthetic parts and you still be you? I mean, right now we pretty much think, well, just everything but the brain But what I'm saying is if that becomes possible in the next 20, 25, 30 years, that person who's largely, I don't want to use the word artificial, but it has a largely inorganic body. Today, if that person walked in the room, we would not say that's a human being, right? I'm talking about those kinds of transformations. Some people anticipate that the first person to live to 150 years old has already been born. I tell my students, when you think back to, I mean, Rick, you know, what was the average lifespan in the Middle Ages? Like 30 years or whatever? Yeah. This person is living five lifetimes of someone only 400 years ago. I mean, that's got to look a little bit like immortality. And I mean, the life of a person who's a freshman in college today, they've seen more change in their 20 years of life than humans saw for 600, 800 years. It's almost like being immortal when you're a 20-year-old now. I think that there are lots of different ways to talk about immortality and extended life and those kinds of things. And I think that Charles mentioned earlier the singularity. There's lots of different ways of talking about the singularity. One way is when does AI become conscious? But another way to talk about the singularity, as Ray Kurzweil did, is when technology becomes so powerful and so ubiquitous that it radically changes what it means to be a human being. That, I think, if it hasn't already happened, is definitely happening in, in our lifetimes. That brings up the question of, and you know, I, I mentioned this thing about humanity, species, consciousness is being exhausted. You know, describing living for 150 years sounds exhausting to me. I mean, I'm someone who thinks that subjectivity is a burden in, in many ways. So we may be able to have the physical inorganic parts that maintain the actual sort of functioning of this machine, but that still doesn't speak to our ability to handle the continued undying functioning of that machine. You know, I think about this Anne Rice novels, the the Vampire Chronicles, where you have these ancient vampires who have to go underground and sleep for 300 years because they're being overwhelmed by existence. And I'm like, I'm not sure we can handle that. I don't think we have the, I don't know if you want to call it the spiritual, the psychological, or the emotional capability to be able to handle the ways in which our our, our physical possibilities are outstripping our mental or emotional capabilities. I've been thinking a lot lately about the fact that people are suddenly worried about population decline. And I keep thinking to myself, what is the downside of population decline? It would totally suck to be the last one. Like, nobody wants to be, you know... (laughs) 
<laughs> so like the population decline, I'm really in favor of it. And I pity the last one. Sorry, whoever you will be, if this podcast is still available, I, I, I'm so sorry. Um, right, your ancestors were thinking about you. Right. <laughs> so you're really not alone. You're not alone. <laughs> so you guys, I think uh, we're getting last call from the bar, yeah. from the hotel bar. I mean, getting? we sort of... We start, I think, like, they're literally putting the bar stools on the bar right now. So, I think uh, I saw the bar bat cash out. I think, yeah, right. I think that's where we are. I'll give Frangelica a big tip. So this has been a great conversation. You know, we started off talking about digital afterlives and, and kind of went in a lot of different places. But that is really what I love about talking with both of you. And next time, Rick is back in the hot seat. So, Rick, what are we going to be talking about next time? So laughter is what we're going to be talking about in all of its senses. I want to talk about comedy as social, comedy as critical, other forms of laughter, laughing with, laughing at. So we're going to talk about laughter, and it probably won't be funny. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you guys, this has been a blast. I will catch you on the flip side. All right, good seeing you. Talk to you next time. Bye.